Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It was about a month ago that Amisha Patel was my guest, executive director of Grassroots Collaborative, and uh, we said we'd bring Amisha Patel back uh, with a mystery guest. So we did just that. Amisha, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. And um, we have the mystery guest. The mystery guest is standing by. Um, <laughs> the uh, mystery guest music is kicking in. It's firing the mystery guest up. I can just tell. Now, this mystery guest said the, that he or she did not want to really engage in the political conversation we're having at first. So I'm going to uh, have that with uh, Amisha. But I got a feeling the mystery guest may jump in. Who knows? We'll soon find out. All right, Amisha. Um we always call you our favorite grassroots activist on the Ben Jarowski show. Uh, the election was last Tuesday. Uh, it's been a week. Good God, time is flying. I was so happy on Saturday morning at 1030 when the word broke that Donnie Trump had been defeated. I saw it in the newspaper, Pennsylvania, uh, officially uh, passed that point where Donald Trump could not catch Joe Biden. And it would be added to Biden's electoral college uh, totals that I actually did a one man conga line in uh, my living room. Were you as happy as I was or were you, well, what was your attitude uh, to the news that Joe Biden had defeated Donald Trump? Um, yeah, I was absolutely um, so excited to hear that Donald Trump had been voted out. Um, I, you know, I think it was not, Whenever anyone asked me um, in this last year if we if I thought that Trump was going to win, I thought probably like I really, you know, expected him to be actually elected um, uh, on the third. And of course, we all know there's still the election is not done. It's not secure yet. Um, so there's work to do to, you know, as, as I think we, you know, we're seeing um Trump really worked to try to uh, both definitely and, you know, try to at least in the media and with his followers and validate the outcome, you know, the outcome of the elections, but also with these lawsuits. So, um, but, you know, before going to that, absolutely was just so thrilled that the end of um, Trump, you know, really um, looks like it's here. We've got to fight to make sure that it actually happens, but that the voters really spoke out and spoke out clearly across so many states um, that it's time for him to go. Now, you said that you were uh, dubious or doubtful that Donald Trump could be defeated. Uh, why, why is that? I think that there's a lot of white supremacy in um, this country and that voters have really, you know, like the, the those feelings and those beliefs and those values um, have come through over the last four years. And as much as, you know, it can be, I think, from for someone like me or the people who I share values with, like, you know, inconceivable that after the, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID after, you know, just the atrocity after atrocity at the border at like, you know, at every, at every juncture um, under the Trump administration, it would feel like how, how would it be possible for him to win reelection? 
I think it's possible because of white supremacy and that actually there's such a shared set of values of people, a huge number, like tens of millions of voters um, in this country who, who believe in what he stands for. And so I really did not have faith that, um, that those voters would not prevail. I think also just questions of election security and tampering and knowing that he would do anything he could to try to rig the election and to stay in office. But, you know, I think those two points, one is that there's way too many people who share his beliefs, but also of like, you know, just no end of what he would no no limit to what he might try to do to, um, to rig the outcomes. (laughs) We're seeing right now, Amisha, the limitless, uh, capacity of Donald Trump to try to uh, steal an election that he lost. I do not feel, I do not believe ultimately he will be successful. And by the way, I urge everybody to check out my interview with attorney Jim Coogan. We go through every single conceivable legal challenge that Donald Trump may throw uh, at this process to steal it. And ultimately it would be um, a coup. It would be a, a blatant coup if he finds five Supreme Court justices to sanction it. Uh, all right. Uh, so I will say, can I just say one thing no. um, is that I do think, you know, I, I do agree that I think that um, the chances are, you know, I think that the likelihood of him being successful in trying to um, actually succeed in a coup um, is small. Uh, but I think what he's doing, like damage, the sort of the, kind of specter of mass questioning of the legitimacy of this election um, and what it's setting up the Republican Party and the and the and right-wing conservatives in this country and, and fascists and white supremacists to do for future elections is really terrifying. Um, and I think we have to, on the left, we, I think it might be easy to think like, oh, you know, it's not going to happen or even liberals, like all kinds of folks, I think, think like that's never going to happen. It's never happened here. We won't have a coup in the U.S. And I just think, uh, that is, those are all mistakes um, for us to think that it's not possible or that it's actually, the process is not still actually happening, um, that we have to stay vigilant to make sure, um, and that the process of trying to even raise questions about the legitimacy is doing some things that they want it to do, which is really questioning the um, integrity of the entire system. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I have to pursue this uh, conversation with you because, uh, just let's for a moment concentrate on the mixed message that Donald Trump and MAGA is sending out in order to steal this election. Follow me in this. In Arizona, it's keep counting. In Pennsylvania, stop counting. So when they see that there's a potential uh, that uh, voters could put them in office in a late vote, in a late count, I should say, they say count. When they see there's a potential that uh, the 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 last ballots that get counted will uh, defeat them, they'll say stop counting. Uh, and in the areas where they're asking for the stop counting, that's where black people live. And so they're sending the message that uh, black votes, votes from black areas are corrupted, that there's something you cannot believe. Philadelphia. They, they just say it. I mean, they just go, it's Philadelphia. It's right. Detroit, you know, it, but oh, wait, what, what is Arizona? You know, <laughs> but somehow Arizona is pure. Do you follow what I'm saying? So yeah, they're playing that. They're implanting those seeds in the minds of MAGA as we speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And, you know, I think it's like there's plenty of us who would say, you know, we've all, you know, I question the system of the ele- the integrity of the electoral system, like all of us, many of us do, right, in terms of the role of money in politics. Um, obviously, we saw what happened um, in 2016 with Russia. Like there's, I mean, you know, these questions have been there. And I think uh, that, you know, the, the irony here, I don't know, not irony, but the just challenge of those questions um having already been, you know, sort of existed in some of our minds, the Trump and his followers are certainly manipulating that. Um, and that's what we've seen for four years though, right? The manipulation of um, kind of like taking on the integrity of all kinds of systems while propping up some parts of it um, as being sacrosanct, like policing, for example. Well, that's a whole interesting thing. I could get into uh, Donald Trump's curious attitude toward police. Uh, I've talked about this show a lot. I don't really want to go down this road, but it's really interesting. I got a tremendous kind of ironic uh, kick out of the fact that uh, toward the end of the campaign, uh, Donald Trump was putting a highlight on his relationship uh, with a producer, actor, writer, rapper named Ice Cube, who wrote a song and called Fuck the Police. And I just, I had to just smile because Breitbart's always singing his praises these days uh, and denouncing lefties for uh, criticizing him. And I'm like, wait a minute, aren't you guys ever going to mention he wrote this song? I remember when Paige May, who was an activist in Chicago, got on stage at a Chicago teachers union uh, rally and said it. And there was like my good friend Karen Lewis, they were all like, Call for her head. So I can, I will not stop mentioning that. Amisha Patel, I know you're not mentioning it, but I will mention it's a very curious attitude when it comes to police, you know, with Donald Trump. Uh, they, they're putting up with Ice Cube right now because he's sort of working out to there. It's just an interesting little decision they've made. All right, before we uh, switch gears to fair tax, I have to ask you this. Um, you were saying uh, that you didn't expect uh, uh, Biden to, to defeat Trump, and yet Biden did. In the end, what do you think uh, was the difference that uh, brought the election to uh, Joe Biden at this moment before Donald Trump tries to get the Supreme Court to give it back to him? But what do you think was the difference? Uh, I think organizers of color on the ground and st- in all these battleground states were made the huge difference. And voters of color, in particular black voters, um, made a huge difference. So um, Georgia, like my friend Ense, who runs a new Georgia project, um, which was what, an organization that started by Stacey Abrams, um, the work, they, they were very clear that the path to victory in Georgia and to turning Georgia blue was about expanding um, voting access and expanding the number of people who were registered to vote. And they made a plan and they worked that plan for years. Um, and it worked, right? The number of new voters that came out, right, that was totally the tipping point for Georgia. And I think there's different stories in different states that look different in different places. But, I, you know, kind of the common denominator is is definitely, is absolutely the organizing work to, to focus on um, the vote, voters who've been either on the sidelines um, who've been disenfranchised. And I think you see, again, when you talk about what didn't happen in Florida, you have to talk, this is, again, about you know, the, the, the right taking, taking, um, taking the right of voters of, of a million folks who have been in the criminal justice system and who have not had the, who've lost the right to vote. They gained the right to vote, um, and only to have that be taken away by the GOP. And so I think this is a big, this is a big story. 
um, and the work to make sure that um, um, the people actually have that access to, to cast their ballots is huge and the work to organize and to bring people out and for people to see the power that they have as individual voters, right? Like that's work that's on the ground organizing work because on its own, folks don't necessarily, you know, we see what happens. Like folks don't feel like there's power and possibility in voting and they don't vote. Um, and I think we really saw a, a huge shift because of the work of so many organizers like NSA and so many other folks in states across this country. Hmm. All right. Uh, and finally, there's the disappointing element of uh, the election, at least for me. Uh, I assume you share my disappointment. The fair tax, uh, which would have raised the rates on the wealthiest people in the state of Illinois. So maybe uh, dead broke people like me could get a break, um, was defeated. And uh, so talk about that. Why do you think it lost? Yeah, I this is um, is a huge heartbreak um, for me and for um, so many people who've worked tirelessly for over a decade to try to actually win this. Um, and it's literally been since I think for me since 2009 um, organizing in, in the state to try to win um, a graduated state income tax um, and to win equity um, in our tax system and to win literally billions of new dollars from the wealthiest people in the state um, to fund our core common services and common needs. Um, losing this was 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 terrible. Um, I you know I think I I expected it to be a tough fight. I, I wanted it to be closer than it was. It was not close. Um, we did not lose by any close measure. I, there are still ballots being counted, so you know we you have a few more days still to get the final numbers. But but it's certainly you know not looking the numbers that we have don't look very good. Um, and I you know, I think there's I, I'm still trying to pull out all of the learnings and lessons um, from this and working on writing something up to tell the story here of what happened. Um, so I don't know. And with, we were still trying to understand the, the numbers of who voted and where they voted, but there are some things that we know. Um, some things that we know is that I think it's about 71% of Chicago voters voted yes for fair tax. This is deeply significant. This is where the bulk of 10 years of organizing has focused on. Um, it has been in the city of Chicago. It's been organizing our people, talking about very public ways the need to tax the rich, going after Ken Griffin and other folk, you know, other, other billionaires that, who have been trying to use their resources to consolidate their power and their own wealth raising that all up, really sort of, you know, putting the light on what's actually happening in our economy. And I think, you know, the most promising news of the fair tax loss is the numbers in Chicago were incredible and were, you know, show movement level support for taxing the rich. And, you know, so there's a lot of next steps that we're trying to figure out in terms of like, what does Chicago, what does progressive revenue look like in Chicago? We'll talk about that with, um, with Arturo, Arturo in a second, you know, as we talk about the Chicago story, um, you know, in the next couple of weeks with the budget. But I think that's really hopeful. And, you know, but then the more you radiate out of the city of Chicago, the, the more those numbers change. We were also organizing in Peoria, and we don't have those final numbers yet in terms of Peoria cities. So we're really looking forward to digging into those numbers. And we're hopeful that those numbers also showed a big spike of support um, that will you know, sort of, again, affirm our, our, our core value and belief that organizing works. When we have conversations with people, our conversations showed about 70% support across the state um, for a fair tax when we had the conversations and we, you know, we moved people. I was on phone calls where people were like, I don't know. And by the end of it, we're like, yes, I'm going to vote yes. Um, 
And, you know, the fact is that there were huge number of people we were not able to have those conversations with. And I think in particular, the suburb, we really lost the suburbs. Um, you know, and that showed, I think there, that's where I think there's some stuff to dig into. Of course, there's some stuff to dig into like the kind of rural areas of the state and all of that. But, um, but you know, where are we at? The potential for where we have power in terms of organizing in the suburbs. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to look at and understand there. I will say a couple of things in terms of like what this, you know, I think the story, the battle of the billionaires, um, as it's been framed, the real challenge of the opposition messaging, um, it was brutal. It was brutal because people are vulnerable to, you know, um, being, you know, up to misinformation, but also vulnerable to the place of like, yeah, corruption in Illinois um, is a real thing. It's like there are constant stories and the Democratic Party did not, Nobody, like the party, you know, like the baby's people did not name this and take this, the challenge of the, of the, the fear around corruption. Um, they did not address this and they didn't take it on. Um, and I think that was a key, a key place. We knew how to talk about when we had conversations with voters, we know how to talk about corruption and the impact of it and how to move people past that. Um, but in the absence of those conversations, you really saw very little messaging that happened that kind of named this and took it on. Um and then I think that just the, the fact of the you know the, the misinformation of the of the opposition of Ken Griffin and his buddies talking, especially the fear um, that people really believed around reta- taxing retirement income. Um, you know, there was just a few things like that that we were not able to get past. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the when you. We talk about the politicians and corruption. Uh, that's probably a whole show uh, that we can do. So I'm going to hold back and re- show some restraint uh, before t- taking the dive into that one, uh, Amisha, because I I do believe that the Democratic Party ultimately just lay down on this issue. And um, for whatever reason, and I heard every explanation in the world. I think the last time I in the show, I was telling you this that uh, Democratic legislators would be saying, well, you know, Ben, if I come out too hard for this, people uh, will turn against it because it'll look like Springfield politicians are for this. And I'm like, wow, you just totally bought into the message that the other side is putting out about you. (laughs) I'm like, how do I even deal with that? Do you not believe in this? You know? And uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I could spend hours talking about fair tax. I know that we've got other things that we need to talk yes. about, and we will have the chance to keep having this conversation and having these learnings. Um, I will say it's, uh, you know, I think, uh, so we lost, obviously, big in Illinois. Um, California had a big progressive revenue um, opposition on their ballot, and they it's not official yet, but um, we're they're losing by a couple, like up, I think one and a half percentage points right now. Um, but Arizona did win. Arizona did win progressive revenue um, and specifically for funding education and schools. So I'm really excited to learn, like dig more into both of those states and understand what happened. Um, but, you know, I do think, I, think I want to remind us of, you know, a few years ago, but in 2014, when we had a very simple question on the ballot and a non-binding question of, do you support a millionaire's tax of 3%? Um, for Illinois voter, for Illinois residents um, on your state income tax, it was like, I think six, over 60% support. Yes. For it. So like, you know, in the, the, when it's a clear question and there isn't opposition um, and there's six more years of Democrats and or elected officials doing corrupt things. I won't, but certainly not just Democrats, it's elected officials in our state. Um, 
we know that people are with us. And there was clearly huge barriers that we were not able to overcome to get to get us to where we needed. Yeah, a lot of work. I'll be interested in reading your uh, essay or, or your article about it, and then we'll bring you on. We'll talk about that. All right, let's already sort of tease the name. Uh, and why don't you tell folks, Amisha, who our mystery guest is, um, and then we'll bring them on. Go ahead. Absolutely. I'm really excited um, to be able to talk on this, the rest of the show about what's happening in Chicago in the next set of weeks with the, um, with the Chicago budget um, um, on the verge of, or in the middle of being debated. Um, and I'm really excited to bring um, today's mystery guest on, which is um, Dr. Arturo Carillo. Um, he is the Director of Health and Violence Prevention at Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, which is a core member of Grassroots Collaborative. Um, he's a licensed clinical social worker. He's you know, a really rich history of, uh, of organizing and advocating and doing research around health health issues, health equity in our city. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to bring his voice forward today to talk about the Treatment Not Trauma campaign that he's been leading on. All right, Dr. Garrido, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is an exciting opportunity. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, before we take the deep dive uh, on the issue of treatment of trauma and its connection to the budget, is there anything you want to add to the conversation we had about fair tax or oh. uh, Joe Biden's victory? Anything? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been a massive disappointment on our end as well. I mean, we did a lot of groundwork. We talked to, you know, as Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, as we do as an organization, we're, we're, we're working with community residents throughout the southwest side. We were canvassing and, and really phone banking hard within the six wards that we we uh, we work in. Uh, we contacted, uh, you know, 160 thousand voters. Um, and, you know, the, the overwhelming majority we had of people we're in favor of fair tax, right? We saw uh, massive turnout in, in these six wards. We saw turnout and votes in favor of fair tax surpassing uh, the number of votes that came out in the last municipal elections for both candidates, right? So when there were uh, in some of the wards where we had two candidates running, we had unanimous consent among both uh, supporters of both aldermen uh, candidates uh, showing uh, overwhelming common sense understanding that this is, and this would have fixed as as I mean, just bringing up, you know, the, the complexity of our state demographics and you know, suburban voters versus rural voters versus urban voters are, are always going to keep things in, unfortunately, very close uh, proximity with issues like this. But you know, in Chicago, it, it won hands down, right? If this was a Chicago uh, municipal vote, we would have won overwhelmingly uh, the support of of, of progressive uh, revenue t uh, taxing in the city of Chicago. You know, we, we see that uh, that that people are sick and tired of, of increasing taxes on working families and regressive policies that you know rely on other forms of, of tax and indirect tax such as you know uh, fees and penalties. Right, we we see that the burden has been felt by poor and working class families, and and you know in Chicago we we see. The, the opportunity and actually the continued momentum to tax the wealthy. We see in Chicago there is an opportunity now with the city budget to really think about where and how our own revenue generated here in Chicago can be uh, uh, done in a way that does not fall on, on working class families. All right. Since you uh, mentioned the city budget, let's sh uh, shift gears and talk about Chicago, uh, Dr. Carrillo. Uh, treatment, not trauma. Uh, that's... Uh, sort of the topic, the theme of the day. Please explain what that means in terms of how we do policing and how we respond to emergency calls. 
Yeah, where do I begin? Um, well, I'll begin with this fact. Most of your listeners probably know by now, you know, we have the biggest mental health hospital in the, in the country here in, in, in Chicago on 26th in California, right? Cook County Jail. That's where we house and respond to and and and, and where people who we, we, we respond to uh, mental health crises end up, right? We see Cook County Jail taking uh, many people, many, many people that unfortunately should not be there. Right. We, we know that uh, our, our current intake system for mental health, social crises, emotional crises, whatever it is, goes through Chicago Police Department. And, you know, as a social worker, you know, it just has always baffled me. You know, uh, I've had the fortune of, of, of traveling to other countries and seeing how social workers respond to crises there. And it never involved an armed police officer. Uh, but in our in our context in Chicago, especially where we have the highest per capita rate of policing to, to, to residents, uh, of, of any major city in the country and, and the amount of investment that has gone in policing just continue to, to expand throughout the years as, as investment for mental health services and social services keeps, you know, dwindling. Um, you know, it's, again, it's no accident that we end up in a place where we have Cook County Jail become the, 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 the de facto uh, health, uh, mental health hospital. So, yeah, so, you know, we, we you know, as a social worker, I, you know, I've, I've seen the need on the ground you know, uh, we've done a lot of research throughout the years. Um, you know, this our campaign stretches back. You know, at least through my involvement for the last you know four or five years, where we were really trying to measure what the mental health access are of low-income communities of color, right? On Chicago's Southwest side uh, is where we started. You know, we surveyed 3,000 community residents and we found that an overwhelming percentage of them, 80% of, 80 of them wanted access to mental health services. Uh, when we asked what was keeping them, again, we asked 3,000 people, uh, you know, what we found was that cost and not having health insurance and not having a therapist in your community is what's keeping you from accessing care and unfortunately leading for people, leading people to have one crisis to another, you know, and so what we, what we did is we went further. We said, well, if this is happening on the Southwest side, it's gotta be happening on the West side. It's gotta be happening on the South side. And we did, we mapped out where all the therapists are in the city of Chicago. And and if 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 you go on our website collaborativeforcommunitywellness.org, you'll see that you know the map shows a stark difference, a stark contrast when it comes to mental health access between uh, affluent communities uh, and low-income communities of color. Actually, the ratio, as it turns out, is seventy-six uh, percent of, uh, and I might not get my numbers completely accurate, but I want to say seventy, actually seventy-eight percent of uh, of the community, the city's population, lives in a community that has point zero point two therapists per one thousand community residents, right? Where, whereas twenty-two percent of the of the city lives in in in, uh, in areas that they have over four therapists per one thousand community residents. So when you really look at it on the map, you're seeing that some of the poorest uh, areas of the city that have are only resourced, faced, you know, structural violence, historical trauma, histor you know, uh, historical races, all these social issues that compound on people lead to many, many experiences of trauma and, and complex trauma over the years. And those are the areas that have the least access to care, right? So, uh, you know, it's, it's almost a, a sick uh, a twist that on top of people who are dealing with so much a grief, uh, you know, experiences of trauma that when they have a moment of crisis, the first person to knock on our door is going to be a police officer, yeah. if not one gets called. Right. And so this is, this is where we, we saw a clear, a clear, uh, need for us to move in an entirely different direction. And this is what the campaign has been about. Well, I could tell you, I was speaking from personal experience 
many times in my life, I've had to turn uh, to a therapist for help. I'm no different than anybody else. And I think I would actually say that almost everybody is in a position where either, either they need a little therapy to get them through uh, or they're getting it. And what I'll never understand, and help me uh, here, Dr. Creo, this issue's been around Chicago for a long time. 2011, the Chicago City Council voted unanimously to cut mental health clinics in some of the poorest high crime areas of Chicago. And I've seen no attempt by the city of Chicago to acknowledge that that was a mistake. And it, I would want to get your thoughts yeah. about what sort of the, the mental state, if you will, sort of playing upon there uh, of leaders in Chicago that they think it's a good idea to deal with the stress anxiety caused by crime, uh, by closing mental uh, health clinics and limiting access that people have. Do you think they just don't care about the people who live in those neighborhoods? Well, you know, I think it's a very, you know, I'll, I'll be frank. I think part of the f frustration that we've had when we've shared this data to our elected officials and, and, and actually when we've conducted this survey and, and this analysis and we can, we can uh, develop the white paper on this topic, our main recommendation was we need to reopen those public mental health clinics, right? Because, you know, a 44th and Ashton in the heart of back of the yards, right? Right between two, uh, right? Just the border area between black and brown communities. Uh, you see that that clinic that is a shuttered storefront could be the hub and a resource for access to care. If it weren't for that vote you mentioned, right? And, and the idea that, that that was a, a cost saving measure is to me, utterly ridiculous when we think about you know the amount and the expenditure that we're having to criminalize people and having them locked up in jail as a result of, of decision and that's not counting the life lost of people who lost uh who, who eventually died as, as as advocates at the time and some of our closest allies and supporters and and, and members of our collaborative were in that on the front lines you know calling out the mayor and the and the, and the, and the city council for their decision so one of the things that we did and, and we were very intentional that this was going to be a political fight we, we knew that our report really stuck to the core of the problem. You know, we have a, a, a very misconstrued, we have a very misguided view mm -hmm. on what really can address the problem in our city. And, and we don't speak about the importance of the public sector enough, right? We, we see that the public sector is, and has been in many of our, in many of our, in many of our, um, uh, systems, what keeps our communities functional, right? I mean, we think about this, you know, the, the, the school system that we have, right? We think about the library system we have, the park system that we have, the fire department, right? You know, we, we think about how investing in public, in the public good through the public funded, publicly operated systems is, is vital to keeping our communities healthy. But when they voted to shutter seven of the 12 that remained, and, that, and I'll just remind your, 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 your audience, you know, we, we at some point in Chicago had 19 public mental health clinics, right? And so now we're down with five, we're down to five. Mm. And so when we released our report, we took it to city hall and we said to each one of those uh, elected officials who voted uh, to, to go along with the mayor's wishes, we, we, we brought this to the table and said, this has been the result of the decisions that were made all those years back. We need this to be corrected. We need those clinics to be reopened. And I'll tell you what, Ben, when we took this as a resolution to city council, we put this on the floor of city council. We asked in a resolution that came out of the health committee, we said, 
how we, we put a resolution and we worded the language to really examine and ask our elected officials to vote to examine where mental health clinics, publicly funded mental health clinics need to re- be reopened. And what you found in that election year was 49 of the 50 aldermen voted in favor of our resolution. That resolution passed unanimously, right? And so what we found was that the aldermen had some point, you know, essentially had to kind of own it. They had to, you know, mia culpa, understand that this was not what they had intended. The FQHC system, you know, the federally qualified health centers, the nonprofit sectors, they, they all can contribute to the problem to supporting and, and alleviating the, the problem of mental health inequity, but they are not the answer. They are, we are far cry from the answer. If, if they were the answer, we wouldn't be in the problems in the situation that we are today. Right? right. So building up the public infrastructure is what we held a uh, uh, candidate, uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, uh, at public hearings. We, 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 we asked her and she committed to reopening public mental health clinics as a candidate. As a mayor, she's been very much reluctant, right? And so what we're seeing now is the opportunity to take those five mental health clinics that remain and making them this community hub for a, an outreach model that thinks about responding to trauma and crises in community without involving the police, by involving social workers, paramedics, uh, community health workers, peer supporters, to be the frontline workers, again, that are part of our public sector, that are receiving well-paying jobs with great benefits, keeping a long-term task or workforce that can be uh, responding to crises. That's what the, the intention of this, of this uh, council, um, council order that's been introduced by uh, Alderman, Rosana, uh, uh, Alderman Rosana and also uh, t- at this point, 10 other aldermen who are co- co-sponsors on this, on this uh, council order. All right. Now, let me bring Amish in on this part of uh, the conversation and then the doctor will get your thoughts on this. Uh, when I listened uh, uh, to what uh, Dr. Carrillo had to say, uh, I remembered these fights, uh, Amisha, for more funding uh, going back to the ROM years. And I remember many aldermen would privately say, Ben, yeah, you know, we really got to do more. But then ROM will put that squeeze on them. And you know, Amisha, they buckle, they folded like deck chairs and uh, no no spine whatsoever uh, during the ROM years from so many of the aldermen. They'll sign your little resolution papers, but push come to shove, they run out the back door. In fact, ROM ran out the back door rather than meet with mental health activists. And he's just smiling. She knows that she remembers what had happened. Uh, do you think there's more backbone in the Chicago City Council now with this new mayor? I see no sign of that Lori Lightfoot's any more committed. And correct me if I'm wrong, Amisha. It, Lori Lightfoot's any more committed to expanding mental health, even if it means taking money from the police, uh, than Rahm was. Uh, so in, in, if you don't have the support coming from the mayor, you need the city council to try to, to stand up to her in this position. Is there more backbone uh, from the city council right now? I, th- I think there is. Um, is there enough is a real question. Um, you know, so the ordinance that um, Dr. Garillo spoke about, you know, really is, a, you know, a powerful, a p- powerful idea that you think would think would be a no brainer, which is that you create a fully independent public citywide 24 hour crisis response and care system. The system that would send a trained social worker and a paramedic, not armed police police officers, to respond to people having a mental health crisis. People have a mental health crisis. You respond with people who are trained mental health providers and crisis responders. Um, it is a very feels very basic, very very makes a ton of sense. Is the kind of thing that would actually keep our people safe. 
would provide that, you know, we've seen time and time again, um, people being um, shot or killed and often black people being shot and killed for having a mental health crisis. Um, and so, you know, I think this is, this is going to be part of the test, right? It's like, will people stand up and fight for this versus the model that the mayor is putting forward, which includes an armed officer, which again, you know, you know, we were for, you know, we reject that there be lethal responders um, to mental health crises. Like we know this is, it has not worked. It will continue to not work. And so, um, you know, I think we've got, we've got certainly this crop of aldermen versus, you know, and the kind of orientation and, and people who are coming out of our neighborhoods and communities coming out of some of these campaigns are now in office, right? And that is really different from 2011. Now, will there be enough? And I think there's like, I don't think you have to be an organizer coming from our neighborhoods to say, yes, this makes sense. And so I do think this is the work we're in, in the middle of, um, you know, actively trying to engage um, aldermen and to have conversations and, and to secure support for this. But we'll see, right? Are people ready to stand up and actually stand with their people, um, and you know, take on, take you know, take on the FOP, um, take on the police, like a racist police system that is, you know, literally killing people in the city over and over again. And I think the question of whether folks are ready to stand with us is is the question, and we're going to continue to organize and mobilize to build the power to to, to demand that this happens. Um, but we'll have we'll know some in the, by the end of this month, right? If if we can move this forward with the kinds of support that we need and to, and to put this into place. So tell, tell people exactly specifically when you say move it forward, what is the it that has to be moved forward? Yeah. Um, Arturo, you want to take this or do you want me to start it off? Um, talking about start off. Yeah, go ahead and get started off. I'll, I'll fill in. Um, so we have, there is an ordinance, um, as Arturo mentioned, um, that uh, currently we're seeking more sponsors and commitments of support um, by from aldermen um, that would call for, that basically you know, would create this public citywide 24-hour crisis response and care system. Um, and this is very much a live piece of the budget negotiations and budget fight that is happening, right? Because this is a, this is connected to the budget that we passed in the city of Chicago. Um, and part of, you know, it addresses multiple things. It talks about the role of policing and how we have to move from defunding the Chicago Police Department and moving resources into things like schools, mental health centers, mental health care, housing. Um, and so this is like, you know, this is one really key piece to it, um, but it certainly isn't the whole piece to what we need to do in terms of defunding the, the Chicago Police Department. But it's a real, like, it's a the starting, it's a place to start, right? And I think, so what we're trying to move is actually pass this ordinance. Um, we want this ordinance passed in the next, um, in the next set of weeks, um, because there are budget, there are budget implications to it. Um, it can move now and it should move now. Um, but I can turn it over to, oh, yeah. Arturo for more to fill in. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Misha, yeah, Misha thank you, because there is an urgency to this. There, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, life is being lost as we speak to this to this global pandemic. You know, in Brighton Park, we see death happening around us. And, and unfortunately, you know, this is the reality that we're constantly being faced with in low-income communities of color, right? You know, you know, we could talk about the disparities in, in the age gap, in the life expectancy gap in the city. We could talk about all the social and emotional crises that people face on a daily basis. 
you know, and it comes at a price, you know? And so, you know, there's also distrust of calling 911, which is also part of why this system envisions uh, the utilization of a 211 system, right? Where we have an alternative to calling 911, where people have the safety of understanding that if they're going through a crisis or a loved one is going through a crisis, or if they see someone down the street going through a crisis and they do not want to call the police, they have an alternative, right? You know, you know, I think for us, we do see a, a stark difference between our proposal in this, in this council order and, and what the mayor's proposing. You know, the mayor's proposing the exact same proposal that, that uh, uh, the current president put forward this summer as having a co-responder, a social worker responding alongside a police officer. You know, that, that is something that inherently does not fit within the, 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 the neighborhoods that we are, uh, immigrant neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, communities of color that have been oppressed for many years are not feeling safer when a police shows up, right? On the contrary, it immediately escalates the problem. So having a social worker and a paramedic show up is, is an alternative. It gives people a choice. And again, it ties it to a public sector infrastructure that can be established and and really and this is when we you know i think we throw we throw around this this term of systemic change quite loosely and you know and 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 for me you know when i say systemic change i really mean our systems need to change by creating the infrastructure the, the public facing infrastructure necessary right to engage with emotional and social crises right people do not have to have mental breakdowns to call this line Essentially, people who are on the streets who are, uh, you know, and we've seen this example in other cities, you know, people who are called being called on for trespassing are often homeless. Right. So instead of having the police show up, you can have a social worker show up. Right. People who are, you know, called on the police for public urination may just also be homeless. They don't have a bathroom. It makes us uncomfortable. But when people are not housed, they, they are not criminals either. Right. When we have people on the street who are crying and somebody is just concerned about their well-being. Right. That does not require a, a, a police, a police officer. We want a social worker responding. Right. So so building the infrastructure here, this is how we create systemic change. Right. We create, uh, again, a system that is operated, owned, accountable to our taxpayers with oversight and transparency in a way that only a public infrastructure can can be. There's a million uh, different reasons why, you know, the public sector is different than the nonprofit sector. The nonprofit sector does a lot of great work. There's some really innovative things that come out of the nonprofit sector, but the nonprofit sector is not accountable to the community. Right. And so, you know, one of the, one of the flaws that we see in the mayor's position in her mental health equity plan to subcontract uh, to, to nonprofits uh, as she recently did with the with the eight million dollars she announced, is it, it it's it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to need. It's also something that could disappear after the funding goes away, just like uh, you know as philanthropy does. You know, it's not really built into the system. It just funds needs as appropriate for a very limited time. When we build up a public system like this, what we're saying is our tax dollars needs to be need to fund you know a first responder system that is an alternative to police, but also. Can, can alleviate some of the demands already being put on the fire department, right? And other systems by having, again, you know, a well-paid workforce being able to respond and do the proper follow-up to, to, to this, uh, to the variety of social needs that we see in the city of Chicago. All right. I think that's a good point is uh, to take it down. Meanwhile, there's just like this violent storm just breaking out outside my house. I don't know if it's outside of your house either. Uh, this is something I'll be watching, uh, Dr. Anamisha, because as a, a jaded observer of Chicago, listening to two of you talk, uh, my guess is that's what's really going on here. Uh, <laughs> I'm so jaded when I hear this discussion is that uh, sooner or later, uh, the city would just drop the social workers. 
So they may agree to have some social workers go with a police officer. I don't understand why you would want the police officer with the social workers. It just seems to be more money. So it's like just if you're going to hire the social, if you committed to hiring the social workers to have them go out, what do you need the police officer? Are you arguing that the social workers need protection from the patients that they're seeing? Is that the argument? And my guess is, uh, doctor, I've been around a lot of budget battles that the social workers be the first one laid off. Do you follow what I just told you? And so like six months from now, there'll just be police officers responding. Do you hear what I just said, doctor? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, you're as jaded as I am, and you're such a young man. Uh, Well, this, uh, I know this will be a a tough fight, uh, Misha. I know this will probably be a a big battle in the uh, city council. If anybody wants more information, they want to uh, volunteer or get involved, Misha, why don't you tell them how they get in touch with you? Um, well, folks can connect to Grassroots Collaborative. Uh, you can find our website, which is grassrootscollaborative.org. Um, you can join our mailing list and kind of get be part of action alerts um, on this issue, on many other issues, um, and obviously on social media as well, through Facebook and Twitter. You can find our handles. Um, and then Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. Arturo, you want to share contact info? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so BPC Chicago is the, the website. BPCChicago.org is the website for is where you can find out more about the work that Brighton Park Neighborhood Council does. And uh, we also have the Collaborative for Community Wellness.org website where you could see some of the research, some of the maps I, I mentioned today. You could also, uh, you know, contact us through that website to be added to our listserv. And yeah, uh, you know, we, we, we really appreciate the involvement of, of, of people right now, right? As, as many people as can reach out to their aldermen at this moment, is, is what's going to make the entire difference on this, right? We, we do have the Progressive Caucus at this point coming around supporting this. You know, we're trying to get some of the other caucuses on board as well. So the more that they hear from community residents, and really, again, as, 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 as you pointed to, recognizing that, you know, this is something that can impact any one of us in any day, Absolutely. you know, we, we want this as a resource for everybody. Absolutely. Don't shame people for this. This is something we all deal with. Uh, absolutely. I speak <laughs> the, from experience. Uh, Dr. Creel, thank you so much. And Amisha Patel, it's always uh, great talking to you. Both of you stay safe and sound as this storm comes in. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Very good. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone. <laughs>